Hey guys, thanks for tuning into the first episode of the podcast. A quick friendly reminder to give us a follow or subscribe on whatever platform you happen to be listening on. My first guest here today is our fine vice master, Robert Leach. We talk about a variety of topics, including almond education and the future of education and what it's going to look like in a post-COVID world. Without further ado, I give you Rob Leach. So, Rob, you've had quite the journey through Ormond's. You came here as an undergrad and now you're here as vice master. Could you give us a bit of a backstory? How did you wind up here at Ormond's? What led you here and what led you back here? Well, Josh, uh, look, thanks for asking. I've had three uh, incarnations in Ormond. I was here as an undergraduate for two years and I came back some years after that as a residential tutor for a couple of years. And then over the last nine years, I've been back here as vice master. And um, it's been really interesting, uh, three very different um, roles in the college, and all three of them more by accident than by design in many ways. Um, my two elder brothers went to different colleges at Melbourne University, uh, Whitley and International House, and so coming out of school, I didn't really have Ormond on my horizon at all. I would have more likely gone to Whitley or International House, and it was just uh, totally happenstance that one of my friends said, oh, I'm going to apply for Ormond, and I sort of shrugged my shoulders and went, oh, okay, I'll do that. So. Uh, and I think I only got in, to be honest, because the master of the time, um, uh, David Parker, uh, liked rugby and rowing. And so I think I got in on those grounds rather than on any other abilities that I might have had. Um, but anyway, I had two really good years in Ormond. Um, it got great fun. And then I moved out into shared accommodation uh, in Melbourne uh, for a couple of years, which was also good fun. I really enjoyed my university years in a share house. Then I worked for a little while uh, and then went to Oxford for two years and did PPE there and was in Queen's College at Oxford, and that was also a fabulous couple of years. Came back to Melbourne, worked for a while in commerce, had uh, two different jobs, one uh, working for a company called Ibis, which is a management consultancy firm, and then working for the Australian Wheat Board, uh, both of which were really good jobs. And the second time I came, after working in commerce for a couple of years, I decided I wanted to move into a different area, so I came back to do some further study. And I'd actually um, been offered a job, verbally offered a job, tutoring at Trinity College next door, and uh, I was about to accept it. And then I just thought, ah, oh, out of good manners, I should ring uh, David Parker, the Ormond master, just to let him know. So I rang him up and uh, said, oh, yeah, David, I've been offered a job uh, at Trinity and I'm just about to accept it. But I just yeah, I thought I should let you know. And he said, oh, well, we can't really have you going to Trinity. Come over to Ormond and um, we'll find something for you to do. So he didn't even have a role for me at the time. But I ended up tutoring in politics and philosophy and doing various other things in the college um, and was here for a couple of years, which was also a really good experience. I then moved into education, moved out of Ormond, moved into education and taught at secondary schools for nearly 20 years, which I really enjoyed. Uh, taught a wide range of subjects from economics and legal studies through to literature and, and the classics and really enjoyed uh, coaching sport and taking out the rec programs. And then a friend of mine contacted me and she said, oh, look, we're having a reunion, you've got to come along. And I initially said, oh, no, I'm not going to come. You know, reunions, they can be annoying. But anyway, she teased me about it and uh, told me to, you know, not to be so soft. And so eventually I came along and uh, on that night I had a good chat to Rufus Black, who was then the master of the college, um, and uh, thought, oh, Ormond's actually still a really interesting place. 
um, and uh, so I applied for a job here and, uh, and landed here without actually almost having been on my horizon at that time at all. Um, so yes, so, so three different times here and three different different roles. Well, thanks for that, Rob. I, I think um, it's really interesting that you mentioned it was by coincidence all three times. And I think that there's this interesting dichotomy that new students either arrive through some kind of remarkable coincidence or through some strong family ties. And either way, it seems to produce great students for us on the other end. Uh, but getting back to this sort of uh, the, the topic of education, I know we're going to talk about it more later on. And so I want to sort of follow up on something you mentioned to me before we started recording, which is that you felt like you weren't the best student. Now, it's sort of hard for me to believe that now that you're Dr. Rob Leach. Could you sort of take us through your journey there? Josh, I'd have to say I bumbled my way through school. Um, I wasn't a particularly good student. Um, I had uh, had good fun in my last couple of years socially and, and played a lot of sport. So you know, my memories of uh, certainly my last couple of years of, of school were very fond. But I'm afraid that um, the, might, the same might not be said of my teachers who probably don't remember me quite so fondly. Yeah, I was probably a bit of a pain in the neck at school and um, wasn't really focused on my study. I uh, managed to sort of scrape into Melbourne University and it took me a few years, uh, several years really, to find my feet at university. I ended up you know, getting decent grades and doing an honours degree here at Melbourne and then the second one at Oxford. But um, it took me a couple of years to work out how to learn. Um, really for me that was uh, learning in my own time, you know, studying books and, and, and those kinds of resources. Uh, going to lectures never really worked for me. I couldn't concentrate well enough to take decent lecture notes. Um, so yeah, I was probably in some ways an unconventional student on my journey through university, but eventually I managed to find a way of making it work for me. Do you think that there's anything the system could have done to accommodate you or do you think you were just destined to be an autodidact of some description? Look, I don't know, Josh. I think um, I went to a good school and uh, plenty of good teachers at it and many of my friends did very well and, and loved the, the uh, schooling, uh, the classroom and the teaching that they received. So I think just maybe I was just a bit of a scatterbrain where my thoughts uh, and attention were in other directions. Um, I was always a very keen reader. I think what saved me and meant uh, really more than actually my schooling but managed to get me through secondary school into university was that in my own time I was an avid reader. And, uh, and so I learned a lot from reading books in my own time rather than from uh, the work that I was uh, supposed to be doing at school and, and mostly didn't do. What kind of stuff were you reading? Um, it was really very random uh, when I was at school. I would just pick up anything from uh, Dick Francis thrillers, you know, horse racing thrillers, uh, through to books of nonfiction like uh, The History of Shark Zulu. Uh, I can remember being one of my favourite books when I was a kid. Um, and, um, and then uh, right the way through to classics, uh, uh, Thomas Hardy and, and, and sort of you know, classic English literature texts. And it was very uh, kind of eclectic, random, but um, luckily for me, I, was, I grew up in a family of people who are keen readers. So just there were just lots and lots of books all around the house. So my brothers and sister, uh, my mum and dad, everyone was reading. Um, and so it was just a very normal thing to do. Uh, and as I said, very varied from everything from you know, very serious um, and heady non-fiction through to relatively frivolous fiction uh, was always on, on offer. I don't want to read into it too much, but what interested you about Shaka? I think the Shaka Zulu book um, just totally captured my imagination. He was the most extraordinary leader and led um, the growth and uh, expansion of the Zulu nation um, and, uh, and then ultimately 
you know, I was in battle with with the British uh, colonialists there, and he did. Uh, he really brought to uh, the Zulus methods that the Romans had used in their fighting tactics. So close formation fighting, uh, using of a short uh, stabbing weapon as opposed to a longer spear. Uh, and he, I believe, he learned some of those uh, strategies from uh, Englishmen that he spent some time schooling with in his in his early years. But anyway, one way or another, it's just a fascinating story of a transformation of a nation. Um, and a really incredible leader. Um, and I suppose for me as a boy growing up, it was just extraordinarily exotic reading about this happening in, in South Africa. Yeah. I know some of the people I've followed in the past haven't been his biggest fans. Stephen Pinker's name comes to mind. But, you know, he also doesn't like Napoleon, and I'm a big fan of Napoleon. So, you know. And I think, you know, people who do really significant things like Napoleon and Shaka. They're not necessarily good people. doesn't mean to say you can't be fascinated by them. And if you see how Napoleon treated his soldiers with complete abandon uh, after being defeated in Africa and how he just left tens of thousands of soldiers there to, uh, to, to starve, and likewise uh, you know, fleeing from the Russian campaign uh, and leaving his soldiers behind. So Napoleon did extraordinary things, but he was almost a psychopath, really, in, in his um, total disregard for the welfare of, of his soldiers. Yeah, there's... There's definitely some stuff to be said there, but uh, I sorry, I feel like I've derailed the conversation. Let's uh, get back to um, education. So later on, we're going to talk about tertiary education and Ormond a little bit more. But before we move on to that, I want to ask you about secondary education. So having taught at the secondary level for many years, do you think students who attend private schools come out with a significant advantage over those who attend public schools? And what can our education system do to improve the quality of education at public schools? Or are the differences ultimately not that meaningful in the end? There's a lot there, Josh. Um, I think that the unevenness of secondary education in Australia is a real problem. At the best schools, the quality of education is really very good and would stack up you know, strongly uh, when compared to, uh, to many systems around the world. But many other schools are, are poorly resourced uh, and the quality of the education there is compromised as a result. And it's not that there are not good teachers at many government schools. There are many excellent teachers at government schools, but they're not as well resourced as at, uh, as at, at many of the private schools. So the experience that students get is quite different. I think um, often that's to do with what's the support that is uh, wrapped around the classroom so that um, at private schools there's an awful lot of support to help students in their, uh, their study, their preparation uh, outside of the classroom, lots more guidance. And so that really supports the student on their journey through secondary school and obviously into, uh, into, into university. Uh, and students at private schools get a lot more enrichment opportunities so that there are far fuller programs in sport and drama, debating uh, and all sorts of other sort of cultural areas. Which, which aren't available at government schools because the resources are simply not there. The teachers, in many cases, would love to, those government schools would love to put on the programs that are available at private schools, but they simply don't have the resources to allow them to do it. So, um, of course, there are good, there's good potential for students going to those government schools to join clubs and have you know, rich and interesting lives outside of school, but not within the school itself. So it does lead to a real unevenness in the experience. Um, and th- there are studies that show that students that get into um, a university from a, a government school uh, will do well if they get into university because they're often a little bit more self-organising uh, and able to manage their study 
than, than students that come uh, straight from, from uh, private schools where they've been more closely managed in their, in their secondary schooling and often find a, a bit of a challenge adjusting to university. These are generalisations, but they are borne out by some, some research that shows that students coming into, say, Melbourne University from a, an elite private school to a, perhaps a, a less well-performing government school, there's a roughly about a 10.8-hour difference in, uh, in, their, in their capacity. What that means is that a student with, say, you know, 95 and a student with 85 the 95 from a private school, the 85 from, a, from a, a struggling government school, by the time they're in third year university, they'll be getting the same grades. And that gives you some indication of the unevenness uh, of, of the schooling uh, across, uh, across Victoria. So uh, switching gears here to steal a phrase from Sam Harris, I wanted to ask, how do you think the students have changed over the course of your various positions at the college? And what differences have you noticed between the generations? Yeah, look, Josh, I get asked that question a lot. And I, and I think it's quite an interesting one, given I've got you know, an experience of the college over many decades. And the world has changed a lot you know, since I was here in the early 80s. And so are students different? And if so, in what ways? The first thing that I always observe is actually they're more alike than they are, than they are different. You know, Ormond uh, is lucky. It's um, brimful of smart, well-educated young people uh, who are eager to do good things. And that was true when I was here as an undergraduate, and it's true now. One of the big differences is I think that your generation are actually much more socially aware than my generation was. Uh, you are much more conscious of what's going on out there in the world and the consequences, environmental, social, uh, and so on. We were pretty oblivious to that, you know, pretty ignorant. It was not that we weren't you know, well-meaning, but I think we were much more naive than your generation is. Possibly we were a little bit more independent in some ways. You know, when we landed in Ormond, you know, typically our parents didn't see us for the year or saw very little of us anyway. And um, we had uh, far fewer staff in the college at that time. So um, whilst there were terrific people, David Parker I mentioned, the vice master, then Hartley Mitchell was also outstanding. There were lots of really good people in the college. Uh, back in the day, but there were far fewer of them. And so students got far less help academically, uh, culturally, um, pastorally, in all those areas. Uh, you much more had to make your own way through. Uh, and there were some good parts to that. It meant that you had to you know, nut out your own problems and some bad parts to that because then meant that people didn't get support when they really needed it. Uh, and so far more people suffered as a consequence of that. So uh, it's, a, it's a classic example of where there are benefits about the model in, back in the day when you had to look after yourself much more, um, but there are also real, some, some real benefits in having a much fuller staff who are able to support students in, in a range of different ways now. And what about the calibre of students? Uh, look, academically, um, probably, again, it's much the same, to be honest. Uh, I mean, the university's grown, Ormond's grown, there are more students going to university, but in the end, Ormond is still really lucky. All of our students are Melbourne University students, so everyone's got over the hurdle requirement of getting into Melbourne University, which means that students are you know, quite smart, well-educated, uh, and sufficiently well-organised you know, to get into university. So uh, I think broadly speaking, you'd say the cohort of students is, is much the same. Another real positive, I think your generation are much better uh, at putting on events than, than my generation was. We, we had fun, we made fun in our own ways, but when I reflect upon the quality of the events uh, that uh, you and your college mates organise from the, um, you know, the cultural through to the uh, social, like the parties, the smokos and so forth, uh, you do a far better job than we ever did by so far 
there's not even really a comparison. Um, I think you're, uh, as a generalization, I think that you are much more socially competent when you're working in groups and uh, getting up and public speaking and those sorts of uh, general uh, generalized social skills. I actually think your generation are far more accomplished than was the average with my generation. How do you think that's played out, the improvement in the quality of the events? Has it been a slow gaining of momentum over time and students building on what other students have done, a sort of slow evolution? Yeah, look, I think it's mainly been an evolutionary process, but that the, you know, the students club is far busier now than it was you know, back, uh, back in uh, the early 80s when I was here as an undergraduate. Uh, and um, the expectations of what the Students' Club would put on are much, much higher, and that's evolved slowly and steadily over time. And the expectations are uh, you know, combinations of what students themselves expect from a quality event. They're also uh, the community's expectations of how well a run an event should be, um, responsible serving of alcohol and similar sorts of things that are expected now and are just the norm at a student event, which uh, really weren't, uh, didn't, really didn't exist. Um, uh, back in the, the 1980s when I was here. Um, the college as a whole is much busier. There are, there are more programs, more, more things on offer um, in the evenings and at weekends than there, are, than there were decades ago. That's been a slow and steady uh, evolution. And I think the college is, in fact, a much uh, uh, richer and more interesting place in, in many ways than it was, uh, which is not to say, uh, as I said earlier, I had a fantastic time. It was great fun. Um, but I do think there's much more on offer in college now than there was uh, you know, 40 years ago. Well, thank you for that, Rob. That's really interesting, and it wasn't necessarily the answer that I was expecting to get. What kind of impact do you think the master has on the culture of the college and the the experience? Oh, look, I think the head of any organisation has a big influence on the uh, the culture of the organisation, and it's particularly true in educational institutions and a residential college like Ormond. I think the head of the college has a big influence. David Parker was a very dignified man um, and he had the capacity, and this is almost a cliche when you describe it, but he had the capacity to separate the person from the deed. He showed everybody uh, deep respect. Uh, and that was particularly relevant to me as a scatterbrained 17-year-old in my first year at university where I was you know, bouncing off the walls and doing all sorts of crazy things. And he would often call me into his office and uh, you know, give me a, a, a talking to about the need for me to work out how to improve my manners. Um, but he always did it in a way that meant that, he, that I felt respected as a person, even though I was being told that I needed to change my behavior. And in that way, he created a, a strong sense of loyalty amongst uh, my peer group, and certainly with me, uh, because we knew that he was always on our side, always wanting to look after us, always uh, hoping and expecting the best from us, but also not afraid to, to, to pull us into line if, if that's what we needed, which you know, we understood, we were smart enough to realize uh, in the sober light of day. We often did need to be pulled pulled back into line. Um, so, um, yes, I think his his um, his tenure as, as master of Ormond was a time when the place was you know, relatively calm, um, and uh, so he uh, provided a very quiet uh, dignity, caring dignity, while he was here. So I think um, Ormond's been lucky enough to have a lot of really good masters. I suppose the other two masters I've worked I know closely: Rufus Black, who really did a terrific job in. Um, in developing the college in its modern form, um, introducing the graduate community, uh, you know, doing a quite an extensive building program, um, and uh, really uh, set a, a, a central identity of the college as um, having a, a moral identity that we needed to be very conscious of our responsibilities in the world, um, and that started 
from uh, here in Ormond where we had to think hard about our behaviours um, as students and as staff. Uh, and that was really you know, crucial to the identity uh, of Ormond. I think we've been very lucky, uh, you know, after the strength of Ormond's, uh, the strength of Rufus Black's mastership, we've been very lucky to get a, an equally capable master in Lara McKay. She has very different skills uh, to, to, to Rufus, but nevertheless is in her own way steering the college, I think, in really positive directions. And it's been particularly uh, uh, useful or lucky for Ormond to have Lara in, in, the, uh, in the chair when during COVID, because that's required so many different aspects to be managed at, at, um, at a time. And one of the things that Lara does have is a, is a wide spectrum of talents, uh, which she's been able to bring to bear in steering Ormond through, I think, uh, what can, without hyperbole, be described as its most challenging period in its history. Uh, the college, uh, you know, uh, with, under, under the impact of COVID, uh, is under more pressure than ever before. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I think it should definitely be placed in the top three, but, you know, some others spring to mind. Uh, World War One, World War Two, and I imagine the Depression was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Josh. And you'd have, you would have to go back and look, I think particularly the Depression, you'd have to look back at those times and examine you know, closely what sorts of um, pressure the college was under. But it's absolutely clear that, um, you know, the economic impact of, um, of COVID uh, has you know, really put the college in, in a very, very vulnerable situation. Uh, I think we're all confident now that we will steer our way through it uh, and come out the other side in the longer term as a better college in several ways. But, but, the, um, but the, you know, getting these settings right, and that's really about the fact that with um, COVID has made a huge uh, reduction in the college's income and therefore trying to keep the college financially viable so that we can um, you know, open and, and thrive in the future it has been incredibly difficult. Um, but as I said, I'm confident um, that the right things have been done and that we can be uh, you know, sensibly optimistic about the college opening. And we don't know when because the, the actual date's going to be determined by you know, the progress of COVID and, and what governments recommend and so on. Um, but nevertheless, we, you know, we will be open and, and uh, good for business at some stage in the future. Well, that is certainly good to hear. So I'm wondering, you know, has the, the college ever really been particularly prosperous or have we always sort of been a bit strapped for cash moving from year to year? That's right. I think um, the colleges look like big grand places because we've got these magnificent buildings and beautiful gardens. And, uh, and so we look like we should be a, you know, a very kind of rich institution with, with tons of money in the bank. But the truth is that colleges are incredibly expensive to run. The student fees are, are quite considerable, but the actual costs of, of running a college are so high that they're very hard places to make um, a, a decent margin on. Um, and you know, we're a not-for-profit. It's, uh, you know, the, the, what margin we make goes back into the college. It doesn't go to shareholders or owners in any particular way. But nevertheless, it's very hard to make a decent surplus, uh, even uh, notwithstanding you know, the impact of things like COVID. So the college has always been pretty modest economically, even though I said it looks like a grand place because we were lucky enough that Francis Ormond, all those um, uh, 140 years ago, uh, gave you know, a large bequest in order to be able to build you know, a really, really magnificent main building. Um, so yes, I think you're right. Co colleges have always been difficult places to run uh, and, uh, and have always, you know, had to manage their economics very carefully in order to be sustainable in the long term. So I think I think I mentioned before that I think the college will ultimately come through COVID and be a better place in many ways. And what I mean by that is that as we've all been forced to 
upskill in the digital space. And so all of us, from management through to the educators, have had to think really hard about how we can present online material and how we might develop our programs. What that's going to mean is that when the college comes back and students are here, we'll actually be able to have the best of both worlds, where we'll be able to have you know, the rich and uh, really valuable face-to-face -face experience that is, is the best part of college experience. No one is ever going, to, uh, ever going to question that. But we can then marry that with good quality digital offerings, um, and so we can have the best of both worlds. And educationally, we can start to expand our offerings, uh, and that'll help some students, for example, non resident students might actually get real value out of tutorials being uh, live here in a tutor room, but possibly broadcast live uh, via Zoom. And so uh, students that might live a long way away will be able to come into the tutes uh, virtually. So um, educationally, I think we're going to become a better organisation as a product of the experience of, of what COVID has, has forced us to do. It also means there's potential for us to move into that space um, carefully and thoughtfully, but as, uh, as offering uh, making offerings to people outside of our immediate students. You know, conceivably, we could start to develop a commercial offering of educational programs uh, that we offer online to, to non-Ormond students, and that could be a really interesting thing for us to develop um, educationally and also have the potential to develop in the long term uh, a, a new revenue source for the college. Yeah, okay. So this seems to be a fairly natural place for us to transition to talking about online education. So. We're now in a situation where we have access to virtually the entirety of human knowledge. Uh, it's just one Google search away, except for some unique instances where the information may be classified or, you know, it's hidden uh, away in some academic journal that the average person doesn't have access to. And from having access to all of this information, I think we've really come to appreciate what education means, because I think we find that very few people have the ability to sift through that information and actually learn from it. And so I guess my question is, how can we best present information and how do we do that in an online setting in a compelling and meaningful way? Look, Josh, I think, uh, you know, to take your, your first point for, first, I think more, you know, practically speaking, all information is available to us uh, out there on the internet. And obviously there might be some small classified areas that we can't get into. But really, you know, if you wanted to build a nuclear power station, you could probably get the information you needed um, from, from the internet. Uh, I forget who it was, but someone once made the observation that uh, information isn't knowledge uh, and knowledge isn't wisdom. So there's a process uh, from, uh, from where that information is through to us as individuals understanding it and being able to work with it productively and then also being able to apply sort of higher reasoning to it so we can start to make, you know, make some uh, broader uh, decisions which may have ethical uh, elements to them uh, and so our knowledge becomes wisdom. And so that's really where I think education uh, can, can step in and that we can um, uh, use our pedagogy, our, our teaching methods to help students of all ages from right the way from primary school through secondary tertiary into people who are wanting to learn beyond their university years um, and uh, so good teaching is um, is what's important in that space now that's partly getting the, the handle of the technology there's fantastic potential in the technology but getting more skilled at using that so that what's being delivered is not simply a recorded online lecture and therefore often you know relatively poor quality in terms of sound and and, and the visuals but actually developing that into really high quality. Um, it's the, that's available, but it's very uneven around the world. 
but uh, the advent of COVID has pushed so many people on, on into online education that actually that's going to be a rapidly growing area where the quality of what's offered will, will escalate. Uh, and that'll be really good for, for students of all, all ages and all stages of their, of their education. Then there's a need for, for then the teachers who are going to be delivering that to skill up so that they can actually uh, present the information in a way um, that uh, students can learn, uh, setting exercises that help develop that learning, uh, creating uh, feedback cycles so that students are able to, um, to understand their, their own development and know what areas they've got to work on and what areas they're strong in. Um, and again, that already exists. Um, but what we're, what we're seeing is a rapid, rapid uh, um, accelerating of, of the development of that aspect of, of education online. And, and that's all going to be good uh, in the long term. I, I feel optimistic for Ormond because what it means is that the potential for us to really get maximum value out of the face-to-face -face experience, the, um, what I sometimes call um, place-based small group face-to-face -face learning, sitting around in a tute room in a place that you know, with people that you know, and arguing ideas, uh, and that's often the richest and, and the most you know, powerfully developmental aspect of living in college. Um, and, and it's not always in a tute room. In fact, it's often in the dining hall, sitting around the table at breakfast time, perhaps arguing over uh, a story that you've all read in the morning papers or, or similarly at lunchtime. Um, so um, as we develop better online tools, students are going to need to go less and less uh, to, to, their, to their lectures. Uh, Melbourne Uni, obviously, it'll recover uh, from COVID, but many courses will stay predominantly online because um, why, why, uh, you know, why use a lecture theatre when uh, people are getting used to uh, looking at the lectures online? And as the quality of them improves, uh, it'll be to the students' advantage that you can watch uh, you know, television quality lectures uh, and they'll be able to marry that with, with hyperlinks that'll take you to places. Hypothetically, you could be watching a, a lecture on uh, anatomy and then you could then look at a, a, a YouTube uh, film clip of some uh, dissection uh, or some um, um, some sort of um, arthroscopic device looking inside someone's knee, perhaps, and uh, and so you as a student get the value of the lecture, and then uh, and then some film and some other ways of, of supporting your learning, um, and then also the feedback can be really good. So that this is most obviously the case in subjects like mathematics, where you can be doing a test uh, that evolves over the course of you doing the test. So if you're doing well, it can ask you progressively harder and harder questions, or if you're not doing so well. It can ask you progressively easier questions um, or questions that are at your level, and that way you, as a student, are getting immediate feedback onto onto what you know what you're succeeding at and what you're failing at, and that can really benefit the learning cycle. Instead of doing a test and then getting the results a week later or sometimes even longer, uh, by which time your thinking has really moved on, and so the test doesn't really work as any uh, meaningful feedback to you. It's really just an evaluation of that moment in time. Whereas if you're doing a test and it's giving you feedback in real time as to when you're getting things right, getting them wrong, and, and, uh, and testing you at an appropriate level, from a learning point of view, that's just got uh, fantastic potential. And these have been developed in, in, uh, in maths, but the challenge will be to develop them in, in other areas. It's not impossible, um, but, um, but uh, more challenging to develop them in the subjects that are not so much maths-based. Yeah, if I could just quickly interject here. Yeah, there was this interesting offline analog for maths that was essentially this text you would get that accompanied the actual textbook that had the work solutions for every question in the book. And I personally found that extremely helpful because, you know, if you got stuck on a question, you could just go in there, you could look up the question and you could see the process, you could see the steps, how they were laid out. And you almost certainly understood 
at that point, like 95% of the time, what was going on and what you needed to do in that particular situation. And you could figure out the theoretical reasons behind why you were doing that as well and why that made sense as a process once you had seen the step-by-step working out. And that was extremely helpful because if you can only ask your math teacher questions two or three times a week, then that's a huge latency effect that's totally unnecessary. Absolutely. So, um, you know, there's a potential. uh, It's harder to develop these kinds of um, methods in areas outside of maths, as I indicated, but it is not inconceivable. If you look at how some of the law aptitude tests are organised, where there's a, a passage of dense text and then some questions which are you know, constructed as multiple choice questions, then you can see how you could easily adapt uh, that to being online where you read a passage, you then answer the multiple choice questions and it tells you immediately whether you've got them right or wrong. And so you're getting f- feedback in real time as to your comprehension of that piece of text and your capacity to answer um, a, a question in response to that text. Um, as, you know, as I said, there's a huge amount of work in developing these, but the potential is very, uh, very rich and uh, the opportunity for students in the long term will be, will be really good. Yeah, I can definitely imagine the potential there for that technology. There was, there was something else you mentioned to me that was like a, a highly produced lecture as something else that was being developed. And you would, you would essentially have you know, actors uh, deliver the information of the lectures and have computer-generated imagery. Uh, could you tell us more about that? What, what exactly was that? Yeah, so what I was uh, suggesting, Josh, is that in your generic undergraduate subjects in your, in your main uh, faculty areas, they're very much the same the world over. You talk about Chemistry 101 uh, or Economics 101. Uh, they might vary a little bit from university to university, but they're essentially the same in terms of their substance. And so um, really you don't necessarily need an academic presenting those lectures. You need a good actor who knows their lines and you need to give them you know, good material. And then you could film that with you know, really first class lighting and sound so that for the student they're watching something that's really high quality presented by someone with really engaging presentation skills. Uh, and the content then uh, is then provided by a university and might be you know, offered for a, for a fee. Um, and, and so therefore there would be no real sense in you going to your lecture. You may as well watch it online. You can stop it. You can replay bits. You can go off and get a cup of coffee and come back and, uh, and watch it. Uh, and there's real value in that. Now that means that um, you know, the, uh, uh, a company that produces such lectures could then sell them all around the world. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether you're at MIT or Stanford or uh, Melbourne University or at some uh, of college in some obscure part of the world, you could be watching really first-class um, academic lectures uh, presented to you on, online. Um, and that what that frees, potentially frees you up then is to then spend other time in, in small groups, in conversation, uh, and enjoying and, and using that as your, um, as your opportunity to develop your um, discussion um, and exploring um, the ideas at depth. Yeah, I think this is a good idea. I think the closest thing that I've seen to this right now is the the great courses produced by the uh, the teaching company. Is that sort of along the lines of? Uh... That's right. So there's already been a move, in, you know, in this direction, uh, and that's been happening for, for many many years now. And it really is just that the the quality is very variable, um, and some of it relatively poor in terms of the audio visual parts to it. Which means that even if the substance is interesting. It can be hard to really engage in it uh, for any length of time. 
Well, I've studied quite a few courses, and um, and certainly you know, when I've been particularly interested in a text, um, like um, some several years ago, I got really focused on Moby Dick and spent a lot of time um, studying Moby Dick, and I and I looked at some of the great courses on that, and uh, some of them were very informative and and really good value, but others of them were actually uh, relatively poor quality. Um, but what COVID's done by forcing so many people all around the world to shift onto online means that people are skilling up, expectations are higher, the overall quality of online delivery is going to be is is being rapidly accelerated as a product of COVID. Yeah, I think that's good. It's good that the quality is increasing, but I have another major concern with online education, and that isn't necessarily the fault of online education, but it is a reality that has to be dealt with. My generation is very much growing up in this era of social media, and the reality is Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, they're all only one tab away. And whenever you're doing anything, you know, on your computer, it's, it's very easy to get distracted. And those companies are trying to distract you. Those platforms are trying to distract you. They're trying to increase your time on their website. And then, of course, if you're a gamer, there's a, there's a whole suite of social media um, that accompanies that as well. And it's increasingly difficult to just be able to sit down at a computer and, and maintain your attention because all of those things are going to provide you more instantaneous dopamine than sitting down and studying are. So I guess the question is, Rob, how do we make education sexier? Yeah, look, I mean, all of what you're saying is very true. And I've got uh, two teenage sons uh, who are at home as we speak, um, they're nominally going through their schooling, but as you say, uh, inevitably spending a fair bit of their time on social media uh, or playing games. Um, and these, uh, these, these media uh, offerings are incredibly addictive. Uh, and so um, I, I do see my boys being com- consumed with their computer games. I'm not overly pessimistic. I, I, I do have some concerns about the amount of time um, that can be spent on, on these computer games, but Work itself will become increasingly gamified, if I can use an ugly word like that, um, so that increasingly work will be will be done in virtual ways using some sort of control uh, panel. Um, and so a lot of the skills that you're learning whilst you're playing computer games will actually be directly applicable in the workplace. I mean, I know, you know, for example, a good friend of mine who's a professor of cardiology, he does a huge amount of his surgery uh, with the remote devices, um, and he needs you know, the dexterity and the skills of manipulating the devices, looking on a screen uh, where the actual instrument he's using is totally disconnected from, it's being manipulated remotely. Uh, so it's happening right now, it happens in mines, in manufacturing, in, in all sorts of areas, uh, and that's only going to increase. So um, I'm not sure I have a quick answer for you, uh, Josh. I think your generation will, will inevitably uh, adapt as human beings, are, you know, just the most extraordinarily adaptable animal. Um, it doesn't mean to say it will be without its consequences. I think some of them are, you know, the physical health consequences of spending even more time in a sedentary position uh, behind a computer is clearly not good for us. And yet uh, the way in which our study, our life of study, study and then the world of work is going is we're, in, in, you know, we're, we're increasingly spending hours and hours hunched over a computer screen and that's, you know, that, that's just that's definitely not good for us physically. Thank you all for tuning in for the first episode of the podcast. I hope you were able to put up with, you know, me sort of easing my way into this. You know, it's a learning experience. So I hope you can all appreciate 
that you know the quality of the interviewing will get better over time um and just another quick friendly reminder to give us a subscribe or a follow depending on you know what platform you're on there'll also be links in the description to the various other platforms and once again thank you for listening and stay tuned for more coming soon